And hey, if you like the show, do us a favor and give us a five-star rating, but especially a positive review. How was that? Mm, you said us twice in that first line. Maybe try it another way. And you keep glossing over the part about them subscribing. Right, okay. <clears throat> Please remember to rate and review the show. It really helps us stay on the charts. Oh, and be sure to subscribe as well. Mm, I have an idea. Is Joseph here yet? Uh, yeah. I think he's at reception. Which, why is he at the station? I want to record him reading some excerpts from the books. I thought it would be good for the audience to hear from the manuscripts directly. And who better to voice them? Gotcha. Do you want me to grab him? Yeah, send him in, please. Sure. One sec. Are you ready for me? We'll do your readings in a bit. Have a seat there at the other mic. Okay. So what are we doing? I was wondering if you would be open to reading some copy for the show. Really? Yeah, why not? Let's give the listeners a break from my voice. Here. This info at the top is what we need. We've been trying it a few different ways, so if you want to change it up, feel free. Uh, sure, yeah. Let's see here. Um, <clears throat> and please remember to rate, but especially review the show. <laughs> whoa, keeps... whoa, stop. What are you doing? What? I'm reading it. <laughs> what is that voice? I don't know. It's my mic voice. I thought it would sound better, you know, for the show. Just use your regular voice, weirdo. <sighs> Fine. Okay. Um... <clears throat> Please remember to rate, but especially review the show. Review the show. Why are we begging for validation from internet people? We sound pathetic. (laughs) Internet people? Internet people? (laughs) What? You know, people on the internet. Did we get it, Sylvia? Not even close. Let's try the Patreon promo instead. Joseph, would you read that one? It's the part beneath what you just did. What is Patreon? Is that like patron? Like someone to support us financially? Exactly. Who? Whoever wants to. Those internet people you mentioned. I set up a Patreon account for the show. There's a link to it on the website. That's EndlessElsewhere.com, by the way. And we just ask them to donate money? Pretty much. Uh, That's stupid. We don't want their money. We want their attention. To be clear, listeners, we would prefer both. (laughs) I don't really like asking people for their hard-earned money. Dude, my show is on AM radio and you independently published your books. We could use their support. Besides, this podcast is free for them, but it costs us plenty, so... I thought you were going to get sponsors or something. Yeah, but they're really hard to land, especially for a small show like ours. Besides, have you ever been listening to a podcast and you're really getting into it? And then they cut in with a mattress commercial or one of those meal kit delivery services. So obnoxious. It disrupts the story and takes you completely out of the moment. I hate it. So you haven't even tried to get a sponsor? Nope. And it will keep our episodes interruption-free. Nice and clean, you know? Makes sense. But what if a sponsor reaches out to you? You'll turn them down? Oh, heck no. We need that money. (laughs) If somebody wants to sponsor us, you'll hear me on here like, I had the best sleep of my life on that new whatever mattress. (laughs) Then I woke up to have the best breakfast of my life with that whatever meal kit service, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) All right, kids. I think we're done for the day. This is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast, Chapter 3, The Emerald Thread. I returned to the bank the following day. As I entered, I saw something out of place, yet familiar. That freestanding, reversible chalkboard I had spotted in Episode 1. Joseph had brought it up from the vault, and it now stood facing the two armchairs where I'd first interviewed him. You still want to dig into the details, right? Of course. What do you got? 
Joseph went to it and flipped the chalkboard around. Up until this moment, I had only seen one side of it. But now I saw the back. And you probably have too if you've ever seen one of those conspiracy walls. You know, with photos and notes and red yarn connecting it all? Well, this was Joseph's version of that. Except that instead of using red yarn, he used a vibrant green. Wow, what am I looking at? It is impossible to definitively prove the existence of Edwin Lydell Pendergast. That became clear to me long ago. The cabal has covered their tracks far too well. So, once I realized this, I turned my attention to other people with mentions in the books. Oh, interesting. I began with whatever records I could get my hands on. Census data, property deeds, that kind of thing. But I didn't get very far. Most of those are official accounts kept by government agencies. And the Cabal basically is the government, so those would have been the first places they scrubbed clean of all things Pendergast. Absolutely. And it doesn't help that the Cabal has time on their side. The most recent of the three books was written... More than 75 years ago. And it's been 120 since the first one was penned, so yeah, that also precludes any chance of my finding eyewitness testimony. Right. They'd all be long gone by now. So where did you go from there? Of all the many people who are recorded in the three manuscripts, and even of those for whom I could find mentions in other places, there's one name that appears most frequently in, let's call them, non-canonical sources. I looked from Joseph to the chalkboard again. I tried to trace the strand from start to finish, but it was impossible. The yarn at first meandered from data point to data point, but then it started zigzagging wildly about and even looped backward, tying itself into a maddening green knot. Caught in the thickest corner of the tangled web was a black and white photo of a little man with glasses. Taped beneath the old snapshot was a torn sheet of notebook paper with a name scrawled on it. Frederick Hardesty, who built the wormhole tracker thing? The Nazi scientist guy. Pendergast's rival, the Salieri to his Mozart if you want to use a common misnomer. Hardesty is mentioned in some of your older work, right? Those stories you collected and published before the books? Like the Benton brothers, he was on my radar long before I came into possession of the manuscripts, yes. Then, when I found out that he had a mention in the third one, well, I knew I was going to have to corroborate the Pendergast story through the life of his competitor. Ugh, feels rather unfortunate that you have to use a Nazi scumbag to help validate the life of the greatest scientific mind to ever exist. Wait, wasn't Hardesty in that last story you published before the books? The one I used to find the bank? Where he's... Yes. And that's supposed to be real. The part where he's... Yes. So how is it... Let's assume your listeners are not familiar with my work. That was the established conceit of this podcast, was it not? Right. You're right. For the sake of our listeners, please start from the beginning. The earliest allusion I have to Hardesty, and it's not by name, mind you, is in a story from the close of World War II. This is when he was captured by the Allies while trying to flee the German interior as it fell. Once he was brought here, the man changed his name and began his work for the U.S., or the Cabal, really, as we discussed previously. Now, when he appears in the third manuscript, which takes place shortly after the end of the war, he is in the Bunker of Babel. The secret underground facility in the southwest, maybe the infamous Area 51, where Dr. Zhao was working in the present day and whose experience there with one of Hardesty's old devices kicked off this entire investigation. <sighs> Sorry, just want to keep the listeners in lockstep with us. <laughs> no worries. Please, jump in as much as you need to. So, what all did Hardesty do for the Cabal? Aside from building the machine that tracks the use of the orb and the wormholes it creates. Plenty. Remember how I told you that as part of Pendergast's punishment for his betrayal, the Cabal suppressed his scientific discoveries or assigned them to others? Well, Hardesty inherited quite a bit of Pendergast's work, including everything about a field of study that Pendergast had pioneered since his youth, something called... Automatonics. Automatonics? Is that like an old-timey form of robotics? Basically, with a notable exception. 
You see, automatonics was hinged upon a biological factor. A biological factor? Essentially, it was putting a brain into a machine that would revive and then preserve and maintain the organ indefinitely. Hardesty was tasked with advancing the science to its ultimate conclusion. To bring a dead brain back to life? Well, yes, but not exactly. Pendergast had accomplished that much already, but what he had never been able to achieve was to move a brain from its original body to its new vessel with the consciousness still intact. The mind was always wiped clean at death, with the departing of the soul, in my opinion. However, Pendergast could still revive and make use of the now blank slate brain. It was a tabula rasa, but he could get it to function as the organ is meant to. However, the person to whom it once belonged was no longer present. It is my belief that if Pendergast had not given up the work in favor of other things, he would have cracked it. But, as it was, Hardesty is the one who eventually perfected this science. Brains into bots. That does sound more like the bread and butter of a Nazi scientist. It took him years, but Hardesty eventually realized that if you waited until after death to remove the brain, the psyche, the personality, would not be present after the transfer. However, if you conducted the operation with a still-living person, if the flow of life was never broken from the brain while transplanting it from the organic body to the mechanical one, then the consciousness could remain intact. Automatonics was never going to bring the dead back to life, but it could keep the living from ever dying. There was no way to prove his breakthrough, of course. That is, until Hardesty conducted an experiment. And this he did on himself. What? When did he do this? Toward the end of his life. But before we get to that point, we need to briefly touch on some other events that occurred before then. It's important that you understand why he was to do what he did. You see, Hardesty remained at work for the Cabal until he was an old man, but even he eventually grew tired of being slave to them. He started to go a little rogue. He began secret projects that were for himself alone, things he kept from the Cabal, which was a big no-no as you can imagine. Oh, this is getting good. So what did he make? The first of his secret projects was a device he nicknamed the Music Box, which generated a particle field meant to stimulate brain cells and cause an artificial acceleration of the intellect. This guy has got a serious crush on brains. This was how he planned to close the gap between his genius and that of Pendergast's. Even with the Cabal erasing him from history, Hardesty could never forget the man. It was an eternal grudge that he carried, knowing that he'd always be second to another. He couldn't bear it. So he built a machine that would make him smarter? He was going to be better than Pendergast, even if it meant cheating? Yeah, but the device didn't work. At least, not in the way he intended it to. The field it generated, it stimulated brains, just not living ones. Not living. So... It only had an effect on dead brains, causing them to reanimate. And since we know that the consciousness, or the soul, of an individual departs in death, a revived corpse brain is, well, definitively inhuman. You're talking about zombies. His machine made zombies. Pretty wild, huh? But I'm actually more interested in his follow-up project. The Lantern, he called it. Like the music box, this device generated a particle field, but this one functioned exactly as intended. What did this one do? It weakened the veil between our dimension and the next. So you could, like, see into the... It made the spirit realm visible, yes, but there were unforeseen consequences to prolonged use of the device. Interaction with another dimension is not something the human mind can handle, at least not through the artificial method Hardesty had devised. He went a bit mad, was even confined to an asylum for a time. But it was while there that he had an epiphany, his breakthrough in automatonics. 
and Hardesty went on to perfect the science once he was released from the asylum, ultimately deciding that the first test subject should be none other than himself. Why him, though? I'm getting to that. Now, after he got out of the asylum, he went to Argentina, where he reconnected with former... colleagues of his. Oh, you mean like other Nazis hiding out in South America? Yes. He explained to them what he intended and how to go about it. They agreed to perform the operation and did so. Afterward, Hardesty and an Argentine nurse whom he had befriended returned to the U.S. with his now brainless corpse. She was to become his helper as Hardesty was in a rather vulnerable state. Vulnerable how? Hardesty had not been able to fabricate a new body for himself as initially planned. He didn't have the resources, but more importantly the time, as he was getting on in age. The best he was able to create was a small mobile unit that did little more than house his brain. He couldn't move on his own, he couldn't even see. And so he required someone to lug this little brain box around. That was the nurse's job? Among other things, yes. Wait, so was Hardesty's age the reason he was willing to be the guinea pig? He didn't have much to lose if it didn't work, and everything to gain if it did? In part. There's a bit more to it, however. Doing what he did, Hardesty had made quite the gamble, but he'd won. By transplanting his brain, Hardesty had escaped two enemies, death and the cabal. As I said, when he returned to the States, he brought his corpse back with him. This he did to fake his death. That was the only way he was going to finally throw off the yoke of the Cabal, if they thought he was dead. Hardesty had his helper arrange for a burial right here in Circle City, in the very cemetery where you and I walked last time. What? All the graves you showed me and you skipped Hardesty's? I don't know where it is. The not-so-final resting place of Frederick Hardesty was moved by the cemetery officials after it was illegally disinterred and violated quite a while back. Those grave robberies you mentioned. Yeah, his was the last body the ghoul dug up. The body was eventually recovered and taken to the coroner's office for review since it was now technically evidence in a crime. I was able to speak with someone who worked there, anonymously of course, who told me they discovered the corpse's brain to have been surgically removed before death. Anyway, once done with it, they reinterred Hardesty's body, but did not make the plot known to the public to avoid any further attempts at removal. <sighs> wow. Oh, and as a fun little side note, the lantern device. Hardesty had it buried with his body, only for it to be dug up as well. A former groundskeeper for the cemetery found it and, as far as I know, still has it. Unbelievable. So what happened to Hardesty after he was finally free of the Cabal? He angered his helper and she <laughs> walled him up in a house they had purchased here in town. Then, I believe, she went back to Argentina. Seriously? He was alone for years. Apparently, he would sing to himself inside the walls of the old house, which the local kids thought to be haunted. Did he ever get out? In a fateful twist, Hardesty was to be eventually found by some small-time criminal who became his new helper. But that guy got himself killed a couple of years ago, and that's about where the Hardesty trail dead ends. But is he still here in Circle City? He should be, right? According to that last story you published... I don't know if he is at the moment. As far as I can account for, he was in Circle City, and he will be again. I just can't speak to the present. Should we dig into all that now? The whole Dreamcatcher thing? Mm, for the sake of your audience, let's get back to that later. Let's finish laying out the past before we even think about the future. Oh, that's a great tease, Joseph. You have a natural talent for podcasting. <laughs> well, I can say with some certainty that at least half of those listening are screaming at their phones for us to talk more about this, but I agree with you. This story is massive and unwieldy. We need to do this in steps. I don't want this podcast to end up like your conspiracy board there. Agreed. 
What I will say is this, if the listener just can't wait for us to get to all this stuff, Joseph's work is linked to our website, EndlessElsewhere.com, so you can check it out there if you're so inclined. But for now, let's get back to Hardesty. Joseph, if I'm hearing you correctly, so much of what you know about Hardesty is based on anecdotal evidence only, with some of the stories you've collected over the years being a little more than hearsay. So does that mean if we want to prove any of this, we need more than the stories themselves? That is, in order to validate Hardesty and indirectly Pendergast, we need hard evidence, yes? Yes, and as you can imagine, I have already searched high and low for that proof. You've already gone down every possible trail? Correct. There are no more leads left to follow. None at all? Well, I mean, there's bits and pieces, but like that sarcophagus buried at the cemetery, they're all just beyond my reach. Like what? Something about Hardesty? I know of at least one piece of hard evidence. It's not a lot, but it would be proof that Hardesty was actually in that asylum I mentioned, that he was a patient there. This is a legit medical record. An official document like that would be impossible to refute. But, ultimately, it would be evidence for Hardesty and not Pendergast, so it would only provide so much of that corroboration that we're after. Still, it could be a thread worth pulling. Where is this document? When Hardesty was removed from the asylum by the Cabal, his handlers redacted all of his files. Mostly. His name was left on at least one piece of paperwork. I assume this was simply an oversight on their part. And you've seen it? Not me. Someone else. And now the file is beyond anyone's reach. So how do you know about it? Aaron Weliever. Oh, of the true Weliever's. You were watching their show when we first met. I've been watching since the beginning. The very beginning. What does that mean? Before the Weliever siblings had their own hit cable reality show, they were just some local kids who fancied themselves paranormal investigators. They would make videos of themselves tromping about supposedly haunted places and then put these videos online. They even checked out the Hardesty house once, but he was gone by then so they didn't find anything. Anyway, in one of their earliest investigations, the Believers made a road trip down to Kentucky and broke into the Asylum for Ascendant Alleviation, which, until it was closed back in the 1980s, was the largest facility of its kind in the Midwest. And they went ghost hunting there? Indeed. At one point they got into the records room and rifled through the old files. They found a couple that would eventually be of interest to me, two names with mentions from the books, actually. But the more substantial of the pair was Hardesty. They did not film this file, unfortunately, so there is no footage of it. Aaron merely read from it. Shortly later, the Weavers were caught by the local sheriff and kicked out. The place has since been sealed up tight to keep other ghost hunters from trying to get in, hence the file being beyond my reach. Huh, wow. So if you could speak with Aaron, you could confirm that she, in fact, saw his name, and that would be the corroboration you need? I mean, it would not be as good as having the file itself, but her confirmation of its existence would be something, I suppose. It would be eyewitness testimony. But they all went on to become minor celebrities, so they're rather unreachable these days. Which is a shame, because I could tell them some things about their most recent episode. How's that? They investigated Strangledeep Manor. That was Pendergast's final home before his death. To be clear, this was not the ancestral home of his that you told me about the last time. The one that once stood outside of town? Right. Strangledeep Manor was another of his many properties. This one was out west. Gotcha. Also, there's the name of the place. Yeah, it's pretty weird. It's an anagram. Rearrange the letters in Strangledeep and you get E.L. Pendergast. <laughs> That's adorable. Anyway, the house was featured in the third manuscript. The place was allegedly haunted, but it was all subterfuge. Like the name of the place, Pendergast made up the hauntings to keep people away. 
It certainly didn't keep the Weavers away. So what if I was able to put you in touch with Aaron Weaver? Even if you could, she wouldn't talk to me. Why not? Before they hit the big time, the youngest Weaver, Danny, came to me with a story, but it did not end well between us. With how he and I left things, I doubt any of them would speak with me. They might talk to me, though. Of course, your superpower. So, do you have an in with the Weavers? I have Aaron's phone number. You do? I was the MC at that Halloween festival they hold on the east side every year. Oh yes, I'm familiar. The Weavers were in town for it. The whole thing kind of turned into like their homecoming event since they'd gotten so big. They were the grand marshals of the parade and everything. I interviewed them for Circle City Supernatural. Aaron and I hit it off. We swapped numbers to stay in touch. I can give her a ring if you'd like. I would like that very much, yes. Joseph and I were familiar with the Weavers, as you just heard, but those listening may not be. Daniel, Kurt, and Aaron Weaver are three siblings who have their own cable show called The True Weavers, what is an obvious play on the old term true believer. The trio are natives to Circle City and did most of their amateur investigations around town before they hit the big time, as Joseph put it. Their paranormal reality show debuted a few years ago and has only grown in popularity since. Their investigations took place throughout the U.S. for the first couple of seasons, but recently they've started going abroad, something I had not considered in my first couple of attempts to get in touch with Aaron. To be fair, I had no idea what time of day or night it was wherever their show had taken them, or if she even had phone service, so I left her a message and waited to hear back. When she finally got the chance, Erin called me a couple of days later. She was warm, inviting, easy to talk to, which is why we had become fast friends. We chit-chatted for a while, catching up on life. She told me all about the show and the exotic places it took her and her brothers. Admittedly, I was a little jealous. The travel, the adventure, it all sounded amazing. And when she asked what I was up to back in Circle City, I stammered a bit, then told her about my podcast. Well, I told her about most of it, leaving out one key component that was to eventually come up. In the meantime, however, Erin was gracious enough to let me interview her. So this isn't for Circle City Supernatural, right? This is for your podcast? Correct. Okay, got it. All right, well, I'm ready when you are. Very good. Here we go. So, Aaron, I wanted to ask you about one of your earliest investigations, the Asylum for Ascendant Alleviation. Ah, yeah, that place. That was a wild one, all right. I'm told that while you were there, you and your brothers got into the records room where you found a particular file. Do you remember it? Oh, yeah, kinda. Do you happen to recall the name on it? Hmm, it's been so long. Fred something, maybe? That episode is probably still available online somewhere. It is. My research partner has seen it. I was just curious if you could remember the name. It wasn't Hardesty, was it? Fred... Frederick Hardesty? It was, yes. Well, there you go. I remember that being the only thing I could read in the file. The rest of the information was blacked out. Is this who you are investigating for the podcast? Partly. We're actually looking into someone else, and we thought maybe... You see, there's these books that... Are you familiar with the Circle City Collector? I am all too familiar with him and the scandal. Please, tell me. Don't you already know all this? Yeah, but it's good for the show if we get everything in your own words. Gotcha. Well, I personally don't know what to believe about any of it, but I can tell you that my brother Danny believes the Collector wholeheartedly. He does? But I thought they... Clashed back in the day? Yeah, they did. But even still, Danny knows the Collector to be an honest man. A little too honest. That was the reason for their falling out. Right before we got the show, Danny brought a story of ours to the Collector. 
you know, to research and validate. Once upon a time, the collector actually had a reputation for integrity, if you can believe that. The story, well, it was a doozy. And Danny was afraid that people would think we made it up. That's why he brought it to the collector. That guy had the credibility the story needed to not only be told, but believed. But then, before it went to print, Danny got the call. The network reached out and offered us the pilot. Danny panicked, thinking that if the story came out, it could still be seen as a hoax and that the bad press would spook the network. He thought it would jeopardize our chances at landing the show. So he asked the collector to kill the story, which, of course, the collector did not. Ultimately, it didn't make a difference one way or the other. The story came and went, we got the show, and the rest is history. What story was that? I've only read a few of Joseph's publications. Wait, do you know the collector? I do. He's actually a part of this podcast. Oh, wow. Okay. Sorry. I should have opened with that, but I wanted your honest opinion before you knew that he and I were working together. It's all right. I get it. So... The story that Danny brought to him? Right. Well, if you've been working with the collector, then he's probably told you all about Violet by now. She was one of the last book bearers. She inherited the first manuscript from Rex Benton. Yep, that's her. Super weird girl. You knew her? Briefly. We crossed paths with her on another of our early investigations. The worst experience of our lives, actually. Would you mind talking about it? Not much point when you can just read it. That was a story Danny brought to the collector... It's out there in the world somewhere. Besides, I really don't like to relive it. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, no problem. That's not really what I'm after anyway. What are you after, Lindsay? I'm still not clear what your podcast is investigating. It's... I... Hang on. You said Danny believes the Collector. Does that mean he believes the Pendergast books are true? He does. When we met Violet, Danny saw the book she carried. The creepy one with the spiral on it. Well, after the collector put it and the other two into print, Danny bought and read them all. Not sure I should be saying this or not, but at Danny's insistence, we've actually been using the books for the show to find new places to investigate. Have you? Joseph was just saying that in your most recent episode, you had gone somewhere from the books. I think he assumed it was a coincidence. Well, you can tell him it's not. For our current season, we've gone to several places with mentions in the trilogy. Actually, our season finale is, well, was supposed to be that place in the Carpathian Mountains. Has he mentioned it yet? The Land of the Phantoms? I took this call to Joseph the next day and played it for him. It got to the place you just heard when he leapt out of his chair and started yelling like a crazy person. I paused the recording to calm him down. Lindsay, call her back. Now, they cannot go there. Slow down, slow down. What's wrong with you? Lindsay, call her now. Joseph, stop. You don't understand. They've already been. What? What do you mean they've already been there? They've already been to the Land of Phantoms. Yes. If you'd kept listening, you would have heard Aaron explain that the Land of Phantoms was supposed to be their big two-part season finale. They spent months prepping for the journey. They had a team of guides and porters, a whole camera crew, everything. And? And they didn't find anything. Nothing. (sighs) Okay. Okay, no, this is good. This is good. That means they were in the wrong place. Thank God. Hmm, it sounded like they were in the right place. Uninhabited Transylvanian backcountry, surrounded by an offshoot of the Carpathian mountain chain, right? That's how you described it to me, and that's more or less how Aaron did too. She said they found the ruins of a medieval fortress or whatever. They found the... they found the watchtower. No, 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 that, that, this can't be right. 
They also found what was apparently the only way into the region, a narrow, heavily forested valley that cut between the mountains. Joseph, are you okay? That's it. That's the place. They really did get to it. And they found nothing? They saw nothing? Yeah, it was a total bust. Not so much as an EVP, she said. The network was rather annoyed, as you can imagine. They shelled out a ton of money to finance the expedition, only to have to scrap the whole episode. This doesn't make any sense. Joseph sank back down into his chair. I'd never seen him like this. He was thunderstruck. The man looked like his entire world had been flipped upside down. He stared at the floor and kept shaking his head, unable or unwilling to accept what Aaron had told me. And then something very unpleasant entered my mind. Doubt. Doubt in him and his claims. While I had not accepted the Pendergast manuscripts as truth, I, like Piper and apparently Danny Weaver, had come to know Joseph as an honest man. Even if you did not believe as he did about the books, he was not a liar. At least, I had not felt him to be. Until then, why had he reacted so viscerally to the Weavers entering the Land of Phantoms? Was he worried for their safety? Or was it for another reason? Did he know they'd find nothing and cast even more suspicion on him? Joseph had only briefly touched on this place in our first episode. The Land of Phantoms apparently factored heavily into the Pendergast story. This was where the great scientist had first met the time traveler Clarence Grindle, and it was here that the men had collided yet again, decades later in their final confrontation. Joseph had said the region was teeming with the supernatural that creatures of monstrous kind had congregated there over the eons. He described it as hell on earth, but that's not what the Weavers found. I had called Aaron to get her eyewitness testimony to confirm a very small piece of evidence corroborating the Pendergast story, but I had come away with a huge piece that seemingly disproved all of it. I was about to voice my concerns to Joseph, feeling that we were now close enough to have that kind of frank discussion, but before I could get a word out, he coldly asked me to leave. I have to say, that served only to reinforce my doubts in him. I left the bank and went right to the station. My show wouldn't start for a few hours yet, but I knew I wouldn't be getting any sleep beforehand, and I didn't feel like sitting in my apartment staring at the wall. I listened back to the day's recordings, trying to puzzle out what was really going on here. Had I been taken in by a fraud? Plenty of people, basically everyone, had warned me of this, certainly. I didn't feel foolish or embarrassed, not yet anyway. No, I was more I guess I was wondering if I should be feeling those ways. I had more or less gambled my reputation on this podcast. Had I refused to see the truth that was right in front of me all along? I listened to those recordings that I had asked Joseph to make earlier, of him reading from the first book. It seems fitting to play some of that for you now. I've cut a couple of the excerpts together. They concern this alleged hell on earth, this land of phantoms. There is a place that is here upon the earth but not considered a part thereof. It is the last blank spot on the map. It has never been searched or surveyed, let alone conquered or colonized. Those who attempt these feats are devoured by it. It is a land of phantoms in which evil things have made a home, migrating there over the eons as they have, somehow drawn to it. Among these, there is said to live only one man, and in his possession, a great and ancient wisdom, a knowledge of the hidden and forbidden kind. There was silence in the land of phantoms, at first, 
But then those creatures for whom the region is named began their nightly gambles. We were not to see any of them in the moonless night, but we were made to hear them all. There arose from somewhere out in the dark, not tortured, but torturous shrieking, and this was immediately answered by bestial howls. These unholy calls intermingled above our heads into the overture of a wakeful nightmare. How can you, reader, no doubt sitting in comfort and safety, understand the panic I am trying to convey? It is beyond the skill of my pen to enable your imagination to reach such a level of vicarious horror. I had begun to doubt Joseph not because I put any evidential weight on the existence of such a place as this land of phantoms, but because he did. He seemed so sure of it. Sitting here, listening to him reading, the passion in his voice, I think I now understand Don't forget to set your phone to silent before you record, Lindsay. Really smart. Oh, it's Joseph. I have you on speaker, if that's okay. I know your show starts in a couple of hours, but... What is it? What do you need? I was... I wanted to apologize for earlier, and I was wondering if you would want to talk. In person, if it's okay. Of course. Where do you want to meet? I'm outside. What? Of the station? Yeah. Well, come in, silly. There's no one else here yet. It's a nice night. Joseph, are you okay? Until I'd come out here the other day, I didn't realize just how far outside the city the station was. You can really see the stars at night. I'll be out in a minute. Let me get my field recorder. I see Joseph's truck. He has the gate down and is lying in the bed. He was right. It is a nice night. Permission to come aboard, Captain. Give me your hand. I'm joining Joseph in the back of his truck. We're now both lying. Oh, you can see a lot of stars, huh? (laughs) You're here every night. You've never noticed? Sometimes the obvious eludes me. But I usually see it eventually. Oh, yeah? I think I understand what happened earlier. Your reaction to Aaron's revelation. It's not that you're afraid of being exposed as a fraud. You're afraid of finding out that you're wrong. After the scandal, you quit your business of story collecting, but you refuse to leave Circle City. I think that's very telling. Even if everyone assumes you're a liar, you know that you're not. And I believe you quietly assumed that the truth would come to light as it always does that you'd be vindicated. At least, you thought so until earlier today. Everyone should hate to be wrong, so long as it's not for prideful reasons. To find out that you've been mistaken means you've been operating under faulty information. I can't abide that. (sighs) Have I been duped? I know there's something here. I've seen things I cannot explain. But maybe it's not what I thought it was. I've been pushing what I believe to be the truth, but what if it's not? Maybe everyone is right about the Circle City Collector, and the last one to find out is me. I've turned my head to look at Joseph. His eyes are glassy. He is a man come apart. Could you not do that, please? Sorry, force of habit. What was that? I don't know. Let's go inside. Where is it coming from? I can't tell. Can we please go inside now? 
there's two of them. I, uh, for those listening, the only lights on out here are the station's call letters. A neon green glow. Somewhere beyond this light, out in the darkness around the building, and somewhere above it, Joseph and I are hearing... Joseph, what are they? I want to go inside. I don't know if we'd make it into the station. Look, on three, we're going to jump down and get into the cab just as quickly as we can, okay? Yeah, yeah, let's do it. On three. One, two, three. Wait, 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 wait. wait. What? Why did you stop? Where are we going to go? Anywhere, as long as it's not here. Come on, let's... Wherever we go, they're just going to follow us. They're not going to stop chasing us. Whatever they are, they'll tire out eventually. We'll just keep driving. They know where you work, Lindsay. This place will not be safe for you again. Unless... Unless what? I can't let anything happen to you. Then get me out of here. There's another way. Joseph is opening a large crate he has in the back of his truck, and he's... What is all that? It's best that you stuff that recorder in a pocket. You're going to need both hands for this. Here, take this. Seriously? Don't you have guns? That doesn't need reloaded. For the record, Joseph has just handed me a... It's either the biggest dagger or the smallest sword that I've ever seen. It's a basilard. And what are those? Joseph is pulling on some kind of huge, armored... knight's gloves? They're called gauntlets. Are you seriously driving around town with all of this Lord of the Rings crap in the back of your truck? Where did you get all of it? Pawn shop. And you're expecting us to... What? Down! Something... Something has just flown over us and... What was that? Joseph, what was that? There, on the antenna. <gasps> we can see it now. It's it's landed on the station's radiating tower. It's perched on the side of it like a... I don't know what that is. It's like an insect, but it's the size of a... It's huge! Another. What? There, look. The new one is like a beast. Oh, this isn't happening. This can't be happening. It is happening. Stop smiling! We are about to die! What is wrong with you? It's real, Lindsay. It's all real. Here they come. You ready? No! No, I'm not ready! Stay in the truck. It's not much high ground, but it will help with the beastly one. You take it, I'll take the flying bug thing. Joseph, I can't do this. You'd be surprised what you can do when you absolutely have to. And you absolutely have to. say we lived up to our motto. Our what? Do your sign-off. Huh? For the show, your sign-off. Do it.
upright. Do good. Fight evil. Repeat. I'm Lindsay Mallon, and this is the Endless Elsewhere Podcast.